Nice job. Man, I don't even have to preach well after that. That was great. Well, um, I know it's kind of arrogant to say, but I like to think of myself as someone who's culturally astute. You know, I like watching film and I like reading books. And uh, there's a, a movie, a film, really, that came out in the last decade that I think is the greatest and most powerful and important film of a generation, really. And you may have heard it uh, about it. It's called Lindsay Lohan. I mean, it's called Mean Girls with Lindsay Lohan. And uh, she's probably one of the most important actresses of our time as well. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this film, but Lindsay Lohan's character, she's a homeschool kid, so let's hear it for that. And she's a homeschool kid, and she follows her parents around Africa and doing anthropology or archaeology or something like that. And uh, her junior year in high school, or senior year in high school, she comes back and lands up on a high school campus. And uh, she lived life, you know, as a homeschool kid with her parents and understand the world that had this huge view of the world, shows up on this high school campus. And if you've ever been on a high school campus or you remember back, the, uh, the power structure of a high school campus can cause your brain to spin. And there's this really significant scene right in the middle of this important film where her friends guide her through the power structure of this high school. They, they, they draw a map of the cafeteria. I don't remember if you've seen this film. You're probably crying and weeping. But there's this map of the, of the cafeteria. And in the map was all of the different groups of people all centered around the middle group, which were the plastics. I don't remember them. They were the plastics. They were these three mean girls. They were the, the, remember back to your high school career, they were the most beautiful, self-absorbed, snotty, mean girls, and they ruled the school, and they were the center of the power structure at their school. And everyone wanted to know, like, how do you fit in based on where these girls were? And, and you just got to rent it. It's incredible. As Lindsay Lohan figures out where is she going to fit in? She tries to be a plastic and says no, and she's going to leverage who she is and lift other people up. It's a great movie. But what's interesting is when, I mean, I've been working with high schoolers for 20 years, um, but even more than high school, in every area of our life, don't, when you walk into a room, when you walk into work, when you walk into church, you, you intuitively go, there's a power structure here. There's a way in which we all relate. There's certain people who are in charge. There's certain people who are in the back. There's certain people, and we all kind of try to navigate where we fit in. And Mean Girls does a great job of just kind of blowing that up for high schoolers. But for all of us, we all want to know where we fit in. And what's wild is inside of us, and I guess, I don't know if God made us this way or it's because of the fall or what, but all of us need to know where we fit in. Um, I read this book recently by Malcolm Gladwell called um, David and Goliath. And he talks about this theory. It's called the Big Fish Little Pond Theory. And basically it's this, that your psychology, the way that you feel about yourself is totally dependent on where you see yourself fitting into other pe- with other people. And what they would do is they would take smart students, not the best students in the world, but the, kind of like the, the smart kids, and they, they track them through college. And so these smart kids, who weren't the smartest, but they were still smart, they went to Harvard and Stanford and these kind of places. And uh, what happened was, all of a sudden, they were no longer the smartest. They were the smartest kid at Sam Rin, but at Harvard, they were just mediocre. And it crushed them. They didn't know where they fit in because they used to be the top dog, and now they're in a really big pond, and it crushed them. And what's funny is they tracked these, their careers, and they saw that their careers, they started like uh, lowering, lowering their expectations and like would end up in middle management, these great Harvard minds, right? Middle management because they saw themselves as just middle, as mediocre. And uh, one of the studies was saying, what if these like smart people, the smartest kid at Sam Marin, instead of going to Harvard and getting crushed, what if he went to like Cal Poly? You know, Cal Poly is a great school, but if you went to Cal Poly, you're the smartest kid at Cal Poly. And all of a sudden the way you see yourself is totally different. And those, and their trajectories launch. And what's interesting is 
All of us need that. And some people, it's funny, they may not be the best student, but if they go to Harvard, they still feel good about themselves because all their family went to San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, and they're like, I went to Harvard. But no matter how it works, all of us in our humanness, we want to be the best. We want to know where we fit in. And for most of us, we know we're not going to be the top tier, but we feel pretty good as if there's at least a third of the people below us. You know, if there's two thirds below us, we feel great. And that is just the human condition in all things. And what's wild is, Think about this in your life. We mostly pick circles where we can be in that upper third, right? If, if all your friends start getting to be really beautiful or really great at something, you kind of find a new group of friends, right? Or if they all, like, it's just in our human condition. That is how it works. I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but the reason why I want to share that is because that is the human condition. There's a king, there's kingdoms, and we all want to know where we fit in. Most of us can't be the king but we want to at least be better than other people. And we see the world through a ladder, and we're all on different rungs trying to get above people and step on people. It's in who we are. Well, in this series that we're going through called Faith, Stepping Out Into Our Yes, um, we've been looking at faith that says this. Faith is trusting in the character of God and stepping out into his promises. As faithful people, we want to trust in who God is and step out and to be the people that God's called us to be. But this morning's message is, I think, really challenging. It was really challenging for me, and I haven't quite figured it out, but it's a good introduction for us. Because I think this morning we think of how do we step into our yes. We're not thinking, we're not trusting in the character of God for this message. What God is calling us to do is that we would be people that would mimic the character of God. We don't trust in the character of God and step into our yes. God is actually calling us to mimic the character of God and then to to leverage our power so that we actually are the answer to prayers for people who desperately need him. Because all of us have been given privilege, all of us have been given power. But as Christians, we're called to say no to our privilege, and not to say no to our power, but to leverage our power for the sake of those who are under us, to lift them up to the weakest around. And so we're going to do that by looking at a couple different passages of Scripture. Um, Throughout this whole series, we are in Hebrews 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at Moses. Hebrews 11, um, verses 24, says this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he, saw, um, because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not be touched, the firstborn of Israel. And if you're familiar with the story of Moses, or if you've seen the, the Exodus movie recently, right? you have this Moses who was actually an Israelite, and uh, Pharaoh was, you know, they heard this prophecy that a king was going to be born, so he wiped out all the sons, and Pharaoh's mom, you know, wrapped him up and kept him uh, under wraps for about three months, and then sent him down the Nile River. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter uh, picks him up and adopts him as her own son. And Pharaoh, I mean, and Moses grew up in the palace of the king. He, I mean, can you imagine that? He wasn't the son of the king. He wasn't a prince, but he was in the household of the king. He had everything he could ever want. All the riches, all the wealth, all the food, all the leisure, whatever he wanted to do, he had ultimate freedom. He had, I mean, he had the highest amount of privilege and power that you could have next to the king, right? He wasn't just a third of the people below him. It was 99.9999% of the people were below him. And he enjoyed all of the privileges that it was to be uh, in the household of Pharaoh. 
But then he has this epiphany. He realizes that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household is not his people. The Israelites were his people and his people were slaves. And something, you read the story, there's something that happens in him. He doesn't like st- show up right away to be the great freer and emancipator of the slaves of, of, of Egypt. But God is slowly doing something in him. And he's starting to identify slowly and slowly with the, his oppressed people, the people of, of the Israelites. And finally, basically what this passage of Scripture is saying is that he gives up his privilege. He gives up all of the privilege it is to be in the household of Pharaoh. And he gives that up. But what's interesting is he does not give up his power. He goes and he runs away and he has a whole great journey and it's incredible. You should read it. It makes you feel good about your journey because it's long and it's all full of crooked bends. And God ultimately grabs him in the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to release my people so that they can be free. It's an awesome story. And what's interesting is God, I think, uniquely picked Moses for this moment because even though he gave up his privilege, he did not give up his power. Because of who he was, who he was to Pharaoh, he actually had access to Pharaoh. Because of who he was, he was able to be a leader of his people, and he leveraged his power in order to be the spokesman for his people so that God could free all the slaves of Egypt at that time. I mean, it's an incredible, an incredible story. And um, it wasn't so much that Moses stepped out in faith as it was as Moses began to mimic the, the character of God. That in God's economy, there aren't kings and slaves, but that, God, that he was going to identify with God and he was going to use his power for the benefit of his people. And what I think is interesting is from all time, from the beginning of time until now, that there are kings and there are kingdoms. And those kings and kingdoms always leverage their power at the sake of other people, at the poor, at the oppressed, at the people who aren't like them. We all use and benefit from people who are under us. We all have privilege, and most of our privilege comes at the sake of other people, socially, economically, politically, whatever. And um, what's interesting is, so for, there's always been these kingdoms, and all of us are you know, scraping to try to get higher and higher. But it ends right here, it says, but by faith he kept the Passover, and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And before the, the slaves could be free, you know, God sent all these plagues. The last plague was the plague of the firstborn, where God was going to wipe out the firstborn of all of Israel. And Moses establishes uh, the, 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 the Passover feast where they take the blood of the lamb, they wipe it on the doors, and then the, the destroyer comes in and passes over the house that are protected by the blood of the lamb and, uh, and ends up wiping out the firstborn of everybody else. And that was the thing that pushed Pharaoh over the edge and freed the slaves. Well, 1,500 years later, on Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is Palm Sunday because people were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. The Passover, which had been celebrated for 1,500 times since then, was this time where the people of Israel sat around and remembered when they were slaves. Remember when they were the poor and the oppressed, when they were um, sojourners. And they tell the story, even to this day, the Jewish families sit around and tell the story, remembering when they were those people and how God rescued them and how God longs to use them for the restoration of other people. Have you ever noticed why a lot of our Jewish friends are so philanthropic and so socially minded? It's because the story that they tell themselves every year, year in and year out, is that we were slaves and God rescued us. And now we are to use our power and privilege for the sake of others. Well, for 1,500 years, people were telling that story and, uh, until Jesus shows up uh, in John chapter 10, verse 12, and says this, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So all of these Jewish people were gathered in Jerusalem, ready to celebrate the Passover feast, to celebrate that God rescued them from slavery into the promised land. And now, in this time, they were looking for a new king, not the Roman king that was going to oppress them, but a new king. And they pointed to Jesus and they gave him the, the greeting that a king deserves. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But then Jesus found a donkey. He sat on it as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See that your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So immediately you see that Jesus is coming in as a king to establish a brand new kingdom. And he does it in a really unique way. He rides in, not on a war horse, not on a giant powerful steed where he gets to say, I am the king of Israel, but he comes in humbly on a, on a, on a donkey. Because the kingdom that Jesus is establishing is a kingdom unlike every other kingdom we've all established, uh, all experienced. Unlike the, the kingdom of Pharaoh, unlike the kingdom of mean girls, and everything in between, a totally new kingdom. A kingdom where this king is humble and gentle, a kingdom where our king is also both powerful and authoritative. So just like Moses gave up his prestige, but he still leveraged his power for the will of God, Jesus did the exact same thing. Jesus gave up his prestige. He gave up sitting at the right hand of God, enjoying being worshipped forever by angels, and took on humanity, took on the form of a human as a servant, and wandered through, and, and, you know, walked through the earth, and ultimately died on a cross for us. He gave up all of his prestige, but he leveraged his power. He leveraged his power because he was still God. He used his power to free us from sin, to, uh, to rescue the captives, to heal the broken. And Jesus, God's very own son, God in human form, showed us that he identifies with the captives. And what's interesting is, the question I think is posed to us is in this new kingdom, we all know how the real world works. We all know how the kingdom of the world works, who the king is, and how to climb up the ladder. But I think on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides in on a donkey and establishes a new kingdom, he invites us into a different sort of kingdom. And we have to wrestle with, is this a kingdom that's worth submitting to? Because this kingdom is totally different. In this kingdom, there is no more hierarchy. James and John went to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to sit on your right. I want to sit on your left. We get you're establishing a new kingdom. We get it's all about love and servants and stuff, but I still want to be on your right hand. I still want to be on your left hand. And Jesus said, you don't understand. That's not how my kingdom works. There is no right hand. There is no left hand. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to be a servant of all. That's how the kingdom of God works. There's no more rank. It is a flat earth world. The humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. His kingdom is also really costly. This kingdom of God is not about using power and politics and manipulation to try to move up the corporate ladder. The kingdom of God is a costly, is a costly, costly endeavor. Jesus says that if we are going to gain our lives, we have to lose our life. He, Jesus says that we have to pick up our cross and follow him. Jesus says that the, the, the path of the kingdom of heaven is a narrow road, is a costly kingdom. But this kingdom is also an incredible kingdom. It is an incredible kingdom because our king didn't just lord over his prestige over us and cause us all to bow low. Jesus, in fact, gave up his prestige and leveraged his power so that all of us who in our true being are foreigners, are slaves, are oppressed, are weak, are slaves, are disenfranchised, all of us in our flesh, that's who we really are. And Jesus made a way for all of us to be brought into the family of God. He did that through his power, through the power of his life, 
his death, and his resurrection. And now he's brought us into a kingdom that's characterized by love and joy and peace. He's brought us into a, a kingdom where it's characterized by mercy and justice and humility. And so we see that Moses, he gave up his prestige and leveraged his power. We see that Jesus gave up his prestige and leveraged his power. And we have to wrestle with, are we actually willing to give up our prestige and leverage our power for the sake of the kingdom of God? Because faith, right, it's stepping out in faith. Um, it's, it's trusting the character of God and stepping out into his promises. But true faith, I think what God is calling us to do is to mimic the character of God. And then to leverage our power to be the answer of prayer that people are looking for. And what's interesting is the church, we're so dumb. We so mess up so badly because in the church, we still do this. We, we go back. We think that Jesus never had this conversation with James and John. We pretend that part of scripture never happened. And we all want, in, in the church world, we, we want to know where we stand. We want to know where we fit in. If we look a certain way, if we behave a certain way, as long as you behave better than those thirds of the people, then you're doing okay with God. And we, that is not how it is. The church has gotten a bad rap because forever we have the words of Jesus and then we don't live them out. We must be willing to live out that we are in a flat world. There is no hierarchy in church. We don't get a lord over people who aren't, don't have their lives as together as we are. And of course, there's other people who have lives over the, better than us, but we don't worry about them as long as we can look down. And that is not what God's call us to do. So we cannot go back on that. And the second is we have this weird theology that we feel like if God is blessing us, I mean, giving us wealth, I mean, if blessing us, if God is blessing us, then we are firmly in the kingdom of God. And God, it's about leveraging our wealth and our power, and God will look at us. I mean, people will look at us and go, man, God has blessed them, and then they're going to worship God. And we see that taken to an awful extreme. That poor pastor who tried to buy a jet, we tried to buy a jet, and it didn't make it past leadership team. <laughs> right? <laughs> leadership team's like, no way. Where's this guy's leadership team? But, but, what, but if you... <laughs> but don't we all do that? We all think if God is blessing us, then we're in the kingdom of God. And it is not about accumulating wealth and power. God is calling us, I think, compelling us to get rid of our prestige, to be done with our prestige, and to leverage our power. You know, what's interesting is, uh, I don't know where you, where you stand theologically uh, with this guy, but the Pope, this new Pope, Francis, is interesting. My stepmom and dad, who uh, are Jewish and atheists, and they could care less about all that, but they love this pope. And I'm like, why do you love this pope? I'm trying to understand what is it about this pope that you like? And, uh, and they have, there's a lot of reasons, I mean, politically that they like him and different things. But it's interesting, this pope is so esteemed. And I think the reason why he's so esteemed is because for the first time in a very long time in the Catholic Church, their leader said, you know what? I don't need the special part of the mansion you know what, I don't need the special car. I don't need the special shoes. I don't need the special clothes. I don't need to have all the prestige that deserve the Pope of the Catholic Church. He said, I'm actually gonna live in this modest uh, housing. I'm gonna drive in this modest car. I'm gonna sneak out and care for and wash the feet of the poor. And what's interesting is all of us, all humans, whether you're Christ followers or not, see that and are compelled by that. You're interested by that. There's something unique about that because in the very nature of humanity is that we're made in the image of God. So when people behave God-like, even people who aren't Christ followers are intrigued by that. And it's funny that the Pope, he did exactly that. He's given up his prestige, the prestige of being the Pope, and he's leveraging his power. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had the honor uh, to be a guest at NCS, which is 
uh, the New Canaan Society. It's like these movers and shakers in San Francisco, and they go and they have breakfast together and they hear speakers. But this one morning, the morning I went, there's this guy from, um, I don't remember his name, but he's this, he's this young guy, and he's kind of awkward a little bit, and as he starts telling his story, you realize that he is brilliant. He is so smart. And because if you've ever been around people who are so smart, you're kind of drawn to them a little bit. And you're listening to this awkward guy telling a story about how smart he is. And he grew up kind of wealthy and goes to the University of Maryland. And he's read the whole Encyclopedia Britannica. And he's like, brilliant. And he's telling a story. But he could have used his brilliance to do anything he wanted. And yet what he chose to do is he chose to end, show up at the Bayview and to leverage his power so that the people in the Bayview would have access to legal help and that he would work for social justice for the, on behalf of the poor. He could do anything, anything he wanted because he is so smart, and yet he leveraged his power for the sake of the poor. And as someone who's not very good at that at all, I was, I was compelled. I was compelled to listen to him because here's someone who put his money where his mouth is. I think what an amazing testimony of the church. If we were known as people who were not about climbing the ladder, who were not about using our power to step over people, to lord over people, but we were people who gladly gave up our prestige. We gladly would give up the little and small honors that we think were deserved. Everything from who gets to ride shotgun and who's going to eat where. I mean, it's from the tiniest things to what we do with our careers, but we all are so entitled and we all so badly want to be honored. It is in us, in our flesh. But as, kingdom, as people of the kingdom of heaven, we have to be known as people who are dying to our prestige. It is not about our honor. It's about the honor of the person who rode in on Palm Sunday on a colt, who was honored as king, but a week later suffered the most grueling fate and died on a cross. And at any moment, he could have said, I am done with this, and been exalted in heaven for all time and just washed his hands of humanity, but instead kept his nose pointed at us and said, I, for the sake of them, I will stay on this cross. And he showed us what love was. He showed us what humility was. And he leveraged his power for the sake of all of humanity. And this world desperately needs to know that that story is not dumb or a myth or fake because of his followers cannot seem to pull it together. So we must be people who give up our prestige but not give up our power. We're Marin Covenant Church. From the wealthiest to the poorest, every single person sitting in this church, just by the nature of our context, has some power to wield, has some context of influence in which to expand the kingdom of God. And we all look at people above us and go, but I'm not them. I can't do it like them. And God is not asking us to move up the ladder to be like someone else and then be there. God is saying, from where you sit, from the area of influence that you live, who are the people that you can give up your prestige and leverage your power to establish the kingdom of God in your little tiny part of the world. And if all of us did that in our little tiny part of the world, and in our little county, and if Christians did that all over America and all over the world, boy, that would be some really good news. And how great that people would be like, I, those Christians, they believe really weird stuff about Jesus, but there's something about how they live that is so compelling. Boy, what an awesome testimony that would be. So this Palm Sunday, when you think about we live in a kingdom— but the question for us is, which king are you going to follow? And in which kingdom? One that's about advancing your own prestige and power, or one that gives up your prestige and leverages your power for the sake of others? Amen and amen. Would you stand for the benediction? This morning for the benediction, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. 
do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of those of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. But therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen and amen.